link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-age children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the EZR program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. Reading is so very important. It's critical that a child learn to read so they can read to learn. And as an adult, reading is almost a necessity to get through life successfully. I'm kind of familiar with that. My own father struggled to read. I've often wondered if he'd been exposed to books and stories when he was a child, if his life would have been different. Research says the act of reading to a child is good. But reading interactively with a child is even better. So get your note-taking device ready. You're going to need it. Hello, everybody. Oh, we're going to start here with disclosures regarding financial disclosures. Dr. Towson does receive an honorarium for this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and she receives a salary from the University of Central Florida. I, too, receive an honorarium for the speech link, and I am a presenter for SpeechTherapyPD.com, and I receive royalty payments Also, I own Speech Dynamics. Regarding non-financial disclosures, Dr. Towson and I have no non-financial disclosures to report, so there we go. Welcome, everybody, to our very live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am Shar Bouchard, your speech-language pathologist host, and I'm so glad that you are here for our very special and very practical podcast, and it's called Reading Beyond the Book. I like that. How to apply interactive reading with young children. Okay, let's jump in here and learn about our much-anticipated guest. Jacqueline Towson, PhD, CCCSLP, says that at this point in her life, she is primarily a teacher, and she teaches at the University of Central Florida. She's an associate professor, associate school director, and graduate program director in the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders with a joint appointment in the School of Teacher Education, which I think is pretty cool. Dr. Towson's specialties include language disorders, language acquisition, so working with toddlers and preschoolers, and language and literacy. Now, prior to her current position, she worked clinically for 14 years as both a speech-language pathologist and early childhood special ed teacher in local school districts. She earned her undergraduate degree then in audiology and speech language pathology from Florida State University, her master's in communication disorders at the University of Texas at Dallas, and then dove in and completed her doctorate degree at Georgia State University in the education of students with exceptionalities with a focus in early childhood special education. 
Now, she has presented at state, national, and international conferences on a variety of topics, and she's completed almost 30 research publications. They broadly concern how to build the capability of individuals, and I think that's probably us, who work with young children experiencing language impairments and those considered at risk. Dr. Towson is also actively engaged in community-based research through partnerships with public, private, and charter preschools in the Orlando area. And when I asked her what she likes to be called, she said, definitely Jackie. (laughs) So I'm very excited that you're here. Love the topic. And welcome to the speech link, Jackie. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. Looking so forward to our conversation tonight. I think this is going to be fun. Oh, me too. Me too. (laughs) I have been for quite a while. I do like this topic a lot. Okay, let's begin with a fairly obvious but important question. Classroom teachers, parents, caregivers, SLPs, we all read books, physical books or online books to our kids. So basically, my question is, how does interactive reading differ from traditional reading? That is a great question to start with. So, and I think it is kind of obvious, right? So when we think of interactive, we think of a back and forth exchange between whoever's reading the book and whoever's being read to. So we do see cases where maybe a teacher or a parent sits down and reads a book with their child and they pretty much read the text on the book. Maybe they make up a story if they don't feel like reading the text on the book. But interactive reading, it's really at any point when you engage the child, either by asking questions or giving elongated pauses, anything that kind of gets the child engaged with that storybook. And I would say that probably speech therapists are pretty good at that. You know, (laughs) yes, we're very focused on the language piece and even throwing in some of the Arctic pronunciation kind of information, as well as looking at the grammar and, oh, let's stop and talk about the vocabulary. So we're probably good at all that, you know, but I'm sure that you're going to add to that and kind of tell us some some specific things to do and how to do that. But before we jump into that, I kind of also like to know How did you first become interested in learning more about, and also, I know that you've done some research on shared interactive book reading. Yeah, so I think you make a good point. You said that SLPs are probably really good at this. And I think one thing that maybe we take for granted as professionals is that we think everybody does what we do or that everyone knows what we know. And I think when I was working as a preschool teacher and also as a speech language pathologist in the schools, I realized that not everyone knew what I knew about language. And so it was really intriguing to me to figure out from a research perspective, how we could maybe modify or enhance some people's behaviors in an activity that they were already pretty comfortable doing, like reading. And personally, in my classroom, I taught three to five-year-olds who had identified disabilities. And I found that story time or centering activities around a story was often when they were most engaged. So it's sort of taking an activity that we already do, we know kids tend to enjoy, and kind of, I'm a Disney person here in Orlando, so maybe I could use a a Disney term and say plussing it, right? So making it a little better. Well, you know, I think of young children, like the preschool age and so on. I don't know if I've ever met a child that doesn't like stories. And obviously, books bring in story. And I would say that that's probably a missed opportunity if we don't use story to kind of jump in and generate and interact and call attention to some of the language kinds of targets 
because obviously story is is a language piece. It's a narrative. And we're missing out on that. Now, you're saying that that SLPs probably do that fairly easily and we kind of know what to pull out and all of that. What have you seen with parents? Like where are parents at or caregivers or even classroom teachers? What have you noticed? Like what pieces do they appear to have and what pieces are they missing? Yeah, great question. So in our research, a lot of times we observe what people do when we don't tell them what to do, right? Just to to get at that very thing you just asked. Like if we say, read the book as you normally would, we certainly see a lot of variability. We see teachers and parents who read just the words on the page and don't engage the child, or maybe they ask a question but answer it themselves. And that can be okay because we know modeling is good. A lot of what we actually see is a lot of show me this, point to this, a lot of just what questions centered around, you know, some basic concepts. Again, not a bad thing. And then I think another thing we see is a lot of almost a bombardment of questions where they ask a question, don't wait, ask another question, don't wait, you know, and then move on. And the child doesn't even have maybe opportunity to process that. And if I can add one more thing, one of the things we've seen when we've worked with some of our caregivers, I actually get to do some work with some adolescent moms. It's one of my favorite things to do. We actually find that some people aren't even comfortable reading because their reading proficiency maybe isn't what they feel like is enough to be advantageous to their children. And that's Right. It's kind of sad because we know that you can make up the story, even if your literacy levels aren't what you think they should be, or maybe English isn't their first language. So they feel less comfortable because most of the books are only available in English. So we see a huge variety, really, across different um, populations. I wonder if, I mean, I'm kind of jumping in here to, you know, to materials, but wordless books, (laughs) you know, where there's just the pictures is that better or not is helpful for people that have some hesitancy with reading stories and their capability to read stories? Yeah, I mean, we haven't personally looked at that from a research standpoint, but my feeling is that for some people that would take some pressure off. But I think also we've noticed that if we just tell the adult, whether it be a a parent, caregiver, or a teacher, you don't have to read the words on the page quite yet at this point. Getting that one-to-one correspondence isn't really what we're trying to accomplish with these young children. Mm -hmm. We just want to talk to them, ask questions. If it relates to the picture, what do they know? I was kind of guilty of that as a mom myself, especially if I was tired. Okay, so you brought up a topic that I am interested in, and that is, what are we trying to accomplish? Kind of, what are our goals, you know, as we're reading this? It's certainly not, oh, let's learn this story (laughs) because there's going to be a quiz. I really enjoy reading with kids because they like stories, because it's fun, you know? So what are some of the goals of interactive reading? If if there are any, I'm assuming there are, but... Yeah, there are. And I think that's what I love so much about shared interactive book reading is the goal is kind of whatever you want it to be. As long as it's language, as long as it's fairly contextually bound within the story, So we, you know, I think the first thing that we usually think of is vocabulary, teaching kids new words, maybe new concepts, colors, shapes. You know, we we love those kinds of things, size words, prepositions. I always think about that from an SLP perspective. But, you know, we we can work on comprehension. We can work on background knowledge. We can work on more literacy type behaviors. So phonological awareness, 
just basic reading concepts. If you think about some of the tests we give to kids, which are kind of crazy, you know, what's the front of the book? What's the back of the book? How do we read books? We read them from front to back. We read them from top to bottom and left to right. So basic concepts of print. It really, I think the sky's the limit. And that's what's so exciting about this, this activity. As an SLP, I totally understand what you're talking about. I'm not sure that parents do. And maybe they look at it as, oh, is that important? You know, I like it's important that kids know that to read from left to right or or to talk about anticipation or prediction or even looking at, you know, some of the vocabulary words and so on. And you've worked with parents and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about working with parents or what we can do to inform them, provide a little education for them that's going to be practical for them and their child or children. How do you approach that? What do you do? So if I'm an SLP in the schools, or even if I'm a private practitioner, how do I approach the subject? Rather than just saying, here's a book, and we've been reading this book, and here you go. I've got another copy for you. Take it home and read this book with your, you know. And obviously, there's more that I want the parent to do. How do I approach that? What do I do? What do I say? What are some of the options for me as I'm working with them? Gosh, there's, there's so many. There's so um, many. I know. See if I can narrow it down a little bit. So there's a particular strategy in shared interactive book reading that's called dialogic reading. It's pretty well known, at least in the research world. Sometimes there's that gap between what we do here in higher ed. But I like it because it's formulaic. So you can teach a parent kind of almost like a formula. Like every time you ask your child a question, we call that a prompt, and they answer you, evaluate their response. And once you, because you're going to say, I, I, I'm a big fan of Eric Carl, the very hungry caterpillar. So, you know, what did the caterpillar eat first? Oh, and now I'm going to be embarrassed because I think he ate an apple, but I'm honestly not sure. Maybe it was a pear. But let's <laughs> just pretend remember. it was an apple. And, you know, your child says apple. Oh, you're right. It was an apple. So then you're, you're giving them some feedback to let them know that they're right or they're wrong. Then the next step in dialogic reading is to expand. We, we as SLPs know that if we can model expanded language, whether it's semantics or syntactically expanded, that that's helpful for kids' language growth. So you might say, oh, it was a juicy red apple. And it doesn't really matter what you say, as long as it relates to the child's response. So that's what we call expanding. The next step is to repeat the prompt. So you go back and say, what did the caterpillar eat first? And you hope doesn't have to happen that the child, instead of just apple, might say it was a red apple or it was a juicy apple or it was a juicy red apple if he hit the jackpot that day. But there's an acronym that goes with that. So that's what we really focus on, something very formulaic that the parents can kind of insert any type of question into. So that's one approach. Okay. That's a good start. And that was dialogic? Dialogic, yeah. So it's like a takeoff from let's have a dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's have a conversation. Okay. So if somebody can Google it, it's how do you spell it? <laughs> D-I. It's, oh, oh, I'm really not good at oh, uh, okay. spelling out loud. Spelling bees were the worst. Oh, D-I-A-L-O-G-I-C. No. And there's lots of, lots of resources online for that that people can find. And I've seen people make bookmarks that they can send home with the parents. And and there's even different types of prompts that you can talk about with the parents. Because one of the things parents or teachers, but since we're talking about parents, that we do a lot of WH questions, right? What's that? Where's that? Who's that? And those are great. 
But there's other types of questions that we find can really promote better dialogue than those types of questions. So I think you might have mentioned this earlier where we have like an elongated pause. So I have to go back to my very favorite book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, and say, you know, and the caterpillar was still, and that leaves a natural opportunity for the child to say hungry, right? So you can do things like that. Another one that I really love that I think parents aren't usually inclined to do is what we would call in informal terms a distancing question. So we know background knowledge is really important for later literacy development. You know, if you can tie something that you are learning to something you already know, you have a much better chance of learning it, right? Right. So distancing is where you try to relate something that's happening in the book to something the child already knows. So going back to the very hungry caterpillar, you might say, the caterpillar, you know, ate an ice cream cone. What is your favorite thing to eat? And you can kind of bring their personal experiences into the story. And I find that kids really love to talk about things that have to do with their life. Sure, sure. It's very personal. I used this with elementary age kids. I don't know if it would be appropriate for preschoolers and so on, but I used a lot of I wonder kind of questions, you know? I love those. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So it makes them makes them think and and you know, there's no wrong answer for that. And I know that when I would read a story, you know, to usually it was a group of kids in therapy, you know, the first question that I would ask would be, Did you like the story? You know, and then do you remember one part about it? What was your favorite? Or, you know, that kind of thing, so that I'm really focusing on their level <laughs> of capabilities. You know, while we're here with the parent piece, do you ever ask them to record themselves or <laughs> to video themselves or to sit and do it in front of you or to bring them into therapy and you sort of do a group kind of interactive thing? Do you do that form of teaching for a parent at all? Absolutely. And I have to tell you, and, and I and I agree with every parent that says this, no one likes recording themselves. And I said, <laughs> yeah. well, it's really, I'm, nobody's going to be critical about, you know, what you're wearing that night or, you know, how you're sitting. But yeah, I really think that, you know, again, we kind of know from adult learning that when you can observe and reflect and talk through things that you have a better chance of improving your use of a strategy. So absolutely having the parent record themselves and bring it in or, you know, even better if you can have the parent read while you're there. We do a group with teen moms. So we do a lot of that in a group setting. And we find that for them, they find that really, I think at first sort of embarrassing because they're teenagers, but also supportive because they get to see their peers do it. So we've also done that with, I guess you would say more typical aged parents where we have them do it in a group even. And that starts to feel safe because they can see, oh, that mom asked that question or that dad asked that question. I can do that too. There's so many books out there, you know, and we can talk later about all the, you know, the books that you like to use and that you think kind of lends itself to doing this. But, you know, YouTube has, mm -hmm. and, you, and you do have to preview them before, <laughs> but there's so many people reading stories on there. I'm wondering if you have found an example of somebody doing an interactive reading 
I think it'd be nice just to have that as a an example for parents or for teachers or for SLPs of here's what it really means in in real life. And, you know, just to post those up on on YouTube and the parent could look at them and, and you could talk with the parent about the specific things that that person did or that you did if you were the person and just say why you did it. Because I'm, I'm thinking a lot of times too, and especially with the dialogic or logic, I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, that that's a formulaic kind of thing, which is, you know, really good for a person starting off. But the parent may not know why they're doing that. And if you had a video of you interacting with a child and doing the interactive reading, then you could also say, oh, here's what I did, here's what I did, but here's why I did it, or here's why I didn't do this, to kind of give them a sense of ownership as to why that's happening, so they could then expand and do it with other books. But I don't know, I'm just thinking, do you have anything like that? No, but that's a great idea. You know, I think I'm a late YouTube comer. <laughs> just sort of discovered that YouTube is a is a real thing. My teenagers will laugh at that. But yeah, I, I haven't really done a lot of that exploring. I will say that now in my position at UCF, I do more research than clinical work. Or, I mean, we do clinical research, but so a lot of times we're creating those things ourselves. So we certainly have created some materials for parents or for teachers that we then use for training or educational purposes. And again, there's a couple of websites that we've referred people to that already have some of those materials developed. Do you remember what they are? Yeah, Reading Rockets is a great website. The other one that people probably aren't as familiar with is the Connect Modules. It's all capital letters, C-O-N-N-E-C-T. They were developed years ago at the Frank Porter Graham Institute at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And they have a whole module on dialogic reading and video examples and materials that you can download for free as a therapist. And you can have planning sheets where you can help parents think. I think one of the hardest things is coming up with things on the fly. Some people are really good at improvisation. Like I know when I'm teaching and you ask me for an example, I can think of none. But if I'm on my own, I could come up with 10, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, I've had that experience. So we really encourage people to preview the book, sort of like you were saying, preview the YouTube. And we use sticky notes, real low tech. Think of some questions in advance. That way, when you're sitting down to read with your class or read with your child, you're not and you're tired. We know parents are so tired. They don't have to come up with them. And that's something you could even do in a therapy session. You could work together with the parent to come up with some of those questions, stick them on sticky notes, send them home with the book, and they're ready to roll. I like that. Okay, readingrockets.com, I know. But the connect, is that a connect.com or is it connect modules or? Connect modules, yeah. Okay. And I can send you that if you if you can't find okay. it readily. But I usually just Google connect UNC and it, and it kind of pops right okay. up. Okay, okay. So it's probably M-O-D-U-L-E-S? Modules, yeah. Okay, dot com. Yeah, I love their materials and they have little video clips that you could use in therapy to show parents or teachers, either one, some of the why. They even interview some people, which is really nice. Okay. Okay. Great. And I bet of all the people that are listening, I bet there are people that have suggestions 
too. So feel free to put them into the chat because I'm sure that there are other places that we can glean information and also send our parents too. So yeah, absolutely good. good. Or even on YouTube. Now I want to go look at YouTube after this. So that'll be what I do maybe tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Well, see, I I really like the book, The Dot. Do you know that book, Hmm, The Dot? I don't know that book. Yeah. And I have used that for elementary, you know, I'm going to say lower elementary and upper elementary. And it's a very easy read, but it has such a wonderful storyline to it. But there's a lot of people that read The Dot online. And also there's a a girl that made up a song and it is so cute. I mean, it's just so cute. So, I mean, people are so creative, you know, you just never know what you're going to find on there, you know? There is a lot on there. That is for sure. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. (laughs) And then other times, you know, it's really helpful. So yeah, yeah. Anything else that you would like to share with us about working with and helping parents? I think one of the biggest thing with parents is probably most people know is just meeting them where they are. And I think parents, you know, I know when I had kids, I automatically felt guilty about everything I wasn't doing right. So we want to be really oh, careful. <laughs> yeah, We want to be real, really careful, though, about making sure that we are encouraging some of the practices they're already using and really you know, I'm a big fan of strengths-based approach. You know, let's find something they're already doing and let's build off of it yes. and not overwhelming them with information that, you know, letting them kind of take one bite at a time. I, right. I think that's the biggest thing. Why? Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I'm also wondering, you know, maybe a grandparent would come in with them or even an older sibling, you know, just simply because reading is so very important for kids' development. It just is. It's yeah. huge. And and I know, you know, when I was a therapist in the schools, that if I was literally all out of therapy ideas, you know, <laughs> or it's like, you know, you have kids coming and going and you got the teachers coming in and you got the phone calls and, oh, I got to write up this report. It's like, what am I going to do with my afternoon kids? You know what? Grab a book <laughs> Absolutely. and read it slash do some interactive reading. I mean, you can't miss you just can't mess right. with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. exactly. Exactly. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Let's talk about the literacy piece. Like let's move into elementary age, you know, early and then maybe later elementary and maybe even working. And I don't know if you've had any experience with this, maybe when you were in the schools of working in groups. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Get us started with wherever you want to start there. And I love what you're doing with with us is giving us really solid things that we can do and that we can apply. So that's good. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, you know, most of my time in the schools was in preschool. I'm, I'm definitely a preschool person, but I did work some in elementary and even up to middle school, even though it scared me a little. But I think one of the things that we might want to try more often is once kids learn to read. So, right, we make that shift of, you know, teaching kids to read to reading to learn that we stop reading to them. And I really think it's a missed opportunity. And I remember when I was in school a really long time ago, I loved when my teacher would pull out a book and read us a chapter a day or read, you know, that was one of my favorite things. So I think one of the things we can do is continue to read to children and use, like you said, 
books as therapy materials. So you obviously would be raising the level of reading, you know, your chap, you might get into short chapter books, or, you know, eventually in later elementary school and early middle school, longer chapter books. And I think the other thing that I've learned a little bit more about recently that I wish I had known Mm -hmm. when I was working in the schools was informational text. The kids that are coming up in the generation now I think there's still some kids reading traditional books. Gosh, I I hope there are. But you know what they're reading all the time? Websites, blogs, Mm -hmm. social media. They Mm -hmm. are expected to extract information from digital informational sources from a very young age, you know, doing their document-based questions in school and things like that. And I think we really need to make sure that we're starting really even in preschool exposing kids and teaching them how to access informational text, because that's probably 80% of or more of what they're being exposed to, even younger than we certainly were. I tell my kids about going to the library and getting the encyclopedia. That doesn't even make sense to them. But, you know, they're Googling information and they're so they're having to figure out, like, how do I use headings? How do I read charts? How do I relate? You know, how do I know what's important to attend to? You can model those things through reading informational text to kids. Now, obviously, you're not going to just pull an informational text and read it front to back, but that's another thing, right, that you're showing them. So one of the tactics that I've seen used and we've modeled in some of our seminars is, let's say you're reading a fictional narrative. Let's pretend it's about owls. I don't know. This is why you should not ask me examples off the cuff because I come up with really <laughs> random topics. I don't even know anything about like owls, owls, but we're yeah. gonna we'll, we'll go with it, right? Okay, yeah. So we're re- we're reading a fictional narrative about owls, and and the mama owl goes hunting at night in the fictional narrative. And you might say, I love your I wonder. I wonder why the mama leaves her babies at night alone in the nest. Would you be scared? You know, you can relate it back mm-hmm. to their lives. Sure. Let's look at this informational book about owls. Okay, so here's the chapters. Which chapter, you could use an index or a glossary. Which one tells us about hunting? Oh, there's night hunting. Let's look. That says go to page 46. Let's go to, that's a really big book. Let's go to page six. And let's read a little bit about why Mama Owl left her babies at night. So you can infuse that learning how to use informational text into your fictional narratives. I don't even know if that answered your question, but that's sort of where my mind went. That's a good example. I just checked out the chat. And do you use books with middle school and high school students also? That's one. And then also, can you give us an example of what bombarding with questions <laughs> and not waiting for a response might look like? Okay. And then another one here. Absolutely. My son is 14 and I still read aloud chapter books Yay. and picture books. <laughs> we enjoy it so much. Okay. So the bombardment piece, I bet, is just kind of, you know, content question after content question and not really stopping to get an answer or to allow the child to think about it, that whole processing piece and so on. Yeah, I bet that's, is that kind of what you're thinking about that? Yeah. And I think that sometimes adults feel uncomfortable with space when they're reading, right? So, and I know you mentioned earlier working with groups in schools, you know, I think we all do that. 
and behavior is an issue. And sometimes if you stop talking, kids start to do things that maybe you don't want them to do. <laughs> so I think sometimes it's almost a behavior management strategy. Oh, look, what do you think the caterpillar ate? Do you think he ate an apple? Do you think he ate a banana? Do you think he ate this? What do you think? And they just keep, that's the kind of bombardment that we sometimes see where there's just no space. And I think about our kids with language impairments, probably like, I'm still on what did the caterpillar and your five questions down the road. Right, right. Well, and that is an issue with so many of our kids is the processing and and the vocabulary and so on. And let's just kind of break this down. Do you advocate, you know, as a therapist, going through the book and doing a little plan and extracting things that you might do and maybe making a list of the vocabulary and coming up with maybe synonyms of the vocabulary words and so on. Do you do prep like that or would you advocate that? I think that I have done it and I've not done it and I would definitely advocate for it. I think that there's so much richness in a book. And I think that when you're thinking about the particular child or group of children you're working with, you want to be, you want to be intentional with your questioning and with your dialogue around the storybook. So maybe let's say you have a couple of kids, two to three kids in your group, one kid's working on inferencing and predicting. Okay, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, ans- I'm asking a couple of those questions to target that skill. Maybe my second child's working on vocabulary. So maybe I want to make sure that I'm asking, what's a word that's like, you know, working on, like you said, synonyms or antonyms. And maybe my other child's working on just WH questions in language processing and comprehension. I want to make sure. So I'm going to be a better therapist if I've gone through that book in advance, looked at the I, you know, goals and objectives of the kids that I'm working with. And again, I'm a big fan of post-it notes. No, no endorsement, but but you know, just <laughs> sticking them in there because again, for me, I'm just not good on the fly. It's not one of my strengths. So if I'm going to be really intentional about targeting the skills that I want to target in a therapy session, then I definitely want to plan ahead. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And plus, you know, if you're in the schools, you've got the kids usually for about a half hour. And, you know, even if you have three kids, you know, you're technically spending 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and you want your minutes to be valuable for each child. And so I really like, in fact, years ago, and I do a language course, and and I share something called the data and documentation sheets. And I go through it. You just plan and you look at it and, you know, you make sure that you have all the vocabulary and you know what they are. And maybe even at the beginning or prior to reading the book, maybe you go through and talk about some of these vocabulary words and maybe write them or put them on cards or play little games with them or whatever, so that they have a sense of the vocabulary and what they what it means. And obviously you're telling them, but you're also pulling that information from them too. So that prep, I think, is kind of important so that I make sure that I am hitting every child's goals because not every child needs to work on their tenses, you know, and yet it's a really good way to know that, you know, over here, Jose needs some really strong tense instruction. I'm glad you brought up data and it makes me think back to the post-it notes because the other thing you can do if you have your different questions and maybe you even color code, I love color coding, maybe, you know, student one gets green and student two gets pink and student three gets yellow. As you ask those questions, you can take data right on those sticky notes, stick them on your table. And when you have time later, you can get it into the right place. So that's another, you know, way of kind of using your time wisely because 
no matter what setting you work in, you're usually working back to back. And it's really mm-hmm. hard to, mm-hmm. to remember all those things between sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have another contribution here. We've got Kevin. It says, I am a middle school SLP and we use books often for treatment on language goals, but I use leveled readers that are shorter so we can complete them across one to two sessions. But would you recommend a longer text broken down into doing a chapter each session? I guess that's what I mean. My concern about student absences or missing sessions, missing out on the story. That's true. The child loses the continuity of it. And, you know, that kind of gets me into something that, and I've read a little bit of research on this, and I try to do it, the whole concept of repeated readings, so that, you know, you don't just take a book and, you know, just read through it once, and then, you know, you talk about a few items, you know, targets or whatever, and then, okay, we're done with that book. I think a lot of times kids love to hear books two, three, four times. And in fact, a lot of times I would take, and, and I didn't do like chapter books, but I did more storybooks. And I would, you know, type up, sometimes it was all the information on a page, but sometimes I would separate it, but put it on PowerPoint. And, you know, I could do it on my laptop or on my desktop or one of my schools, I actually had a large enough room where I could project it on the whiteboard, you know, and I had LCD projector (laughs) and then in came smart boards. And of course, I never had one of those, but but it it (laughs) would lend itself. Yeah. (laughs) And so that we have the sections there, but I do it over time, like maybe a month Okay. And, you know, it's very repetitive for the kids. And I would address different things within each page. And you were talking about color coding. I would color code like the nouns, I I would color in blue and the adjectives red. And then the verbs were green. And, you know, at any rate, I would do that and go through, especially for the older kids. So that would be something else too, is just to type it up. And I would often use, you know, the dictate thing on my on my computer, oh, where yeah. I would just sit and read it, and then you go back and you have to kind of fix <laughs> it up. But it didn't take long to do that. And then I could also print it out and, you know, circle the things that I wanted to really emphasize in there, the targets and so on. So, yeah. So repeated readings, I think, are good. What What's your philosophy on that? So glad you mentioned that. I'm a huge fan of repeated reads. And when I was a preschool teacher in a classroom, we did what you did. We read the same book for a month and at the minimum, probably two weeks. And we would do all kinds of contextually based activities. We would act the book out because, you know, we were trying to access all modalities of learning. And, you know, I, the kids loved it because usually by the end of the period that we were reading that book, they could tell you the whole story and they really felt proud that they could do that. I think it's interesting now, I get a lot of pushback about repeated reads. And I have teachers or parents say, I think they're bored. And I think you're bored. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) I think maybe my language kids are not bored. Mm -mm. You know, it, it, it does give them several opportunities to think about and process and think about the meaning of that word and, and then anticipate before we get to the next page, they're going to know that answer or before, you know, they might not have. I think my language kids really liked that, that aspect. Now, maybe with some really bright regular ed kids. Maybe so. 
And I think, too, one way we've gotten around that is, okay, if you don't want to read the same book every day or three times a week for several weeks, get a small rotation of books. That way they can at least become familiar with four or five books that you keep in a rotation maybe for a couple of weeks or a month. And maybe they're all based on, I'm a big thematic person. I used to love to teach in themes. So, you know, maybe you're going to have five books about the zoo. And so maybe you're not going to read the same book all the time, but you're going to stay at least in the same vocabulary range, the same concept range. And that way you can really work on some of those skills. Yeah, good, good. You know, and I'm thinking too, you've got a half hour and usually the half hours go by so quickly that, you know, a lot of times I would divide it into episodes and have, you know, maybe 15 minutes, if we had a total of 15 minutes, 15 minutes of of doing the story, and then we would do something else for the last 10 to 15, so that you don't have to do it the entire time, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Something else, too, have you ever done echo reading? A little bit, yeah. I Not as much, but I, I'm familiar with it, but not enough to really speak super intelligently to it. Well, all it is, and, and we do it basically already, you know, we ask the child to imitate. And, you know, we do modeling and they often imitate it. But it's echo reading is, is excellent for, you know, the early grades or even the later grades that, you know, kids that haven't picked up on the reading piece, where you say the phrase... You know, because a lot of times if I say a whole sentence, my kids are not going to be able to remember it. But if I say a phrase and I say, oh, it's your turn, help me read this story, and they say it back to me. And, you know, I used that, especially if I were working on the tenses and so on, or if I really wanted to include some of those whatever things I was doing, you know, incorporating some of the vocabulary that we were working on, I would specifically have them echo that phrase so that they would say it. And maybe I would have the whole group say it. But echo reading, and and plus, so many of my kids just were not reading. And I would say, that's okay. You don't have to read everything. And, you know, let's go through and and do some echo reading so that you can, can read as well. And I was surprised, like you were saying, how many of the kids actually pick up on it. And that is if I do it for an entire month. Right. That they pick right. up on some of those words and they, and really, you know what? It really instills a love of words and of reading and of just learning. And if we can just plant those seeds with our kids, wow, we have accomplished a lot because a lot of our kids just don't like language. They don't yeah. like words, they don't like reading. Well, because it's hard, right? And that kind of goes back to the whole incorporating different genres of text. I I don't know when we got so hung up on fictional narratives, you know, and I think there's a lot of kids that think they don't like reading until they discover that comic books are literacy or that, you know, a book about trains or dinosaurs is literacy. So I think, you know, expanding that repertoire and then like I love the echo reading idea and really building their confidence in that I can read Yes, exactly. Yeah, they feel what that that fluency of reading feels like. I mean, it was very helpful and the kids really liked it. And and it took a while, you know, for kids to kind of pick up on that and like, oh, oh, I can't read, you know. Yeah, you can. Here, listen, listen carefully. Say it out loud. Let's all say it together. And even the kids that weren't picking up on it, you know, I'd say you could whisper read. You know, maybe they don't get all the words, but they could whisper them, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, great. You know, I think maybe we have more down here. Let's see. 
Yes, Jennifer, love it. Those who are bored, in quotes, could (laughs) copy pages from the book to work on their writing skills in the classroom setting. Oh, there you go. So that you, you're you hitting all sorts of print language, the auditory, the print, the writing. Yeah, all exactly. The modalities, all the right. modalities. There you go. Mm-hmm. Good, good. Excellent. Any other tips about working with the storybooks and, and that level? We've done some work to incorporating math into storybooks. And, you know, it's funny because I feel like STEM gets all a lot, not all the attention, but they sure are getting a whole lot of attention these days. And that's great. You know, I think I think math and, and science are, are great things for our kids to learn about. But we've done some work, too, incorporating math concepts into interactive reading and have really seen some great effects with kids learning early numeracy and different numeracy concepts. Obviously, there's books that naturally lend themselves to mathematical concepts dare I go back to the very hungry caterpillar again. <laughs> but, you know, there's some that are what we call implicit, you know, math books where you find the math in the book, or there's explicit math books that actually have counting in them naturally. But that's another thing that, you know, I think, I think, again, a lot about preschoolers, because that's where I tend to hang out. But introducing math concepts through literacy is a great gateway to teaching math concepts to young children. And I think that's something maybe that as SLPs, we may not think of, but, you know, math isn't so far from literacy, right? When you think about word problems and you think about reasoning and working memory and all the things that we know go into later literacy, math really shares a lot of those same cognitive skills. So I think that's a, an undertapped area, vocabulary about math things like that, that we can start to introduce maybe a little younger. Yeah. Yeah, Kind of fun. Very interesting. Yeah. I never really thought about that. I mean, I've had teachers say, you know, can you work with this child because his or her math, you know, word problems are just really, you know, they have the technique, they have the mechanical piece, but the word problems, they fall down. So I would just kind of work with those, you know, with the vocabulary, you know, within those word problems. But that's interesting to take that offhand I can't think of books that I would use it for but I need to go back and look at my have a hungry calendar but uh, caterpillar right over there <laughs> I have to take a look yeah. and, and well, you see know, it's, it's funny because one one of the exercises I do I teach an assessment course in language here and one of the things I have our students do is is go into the standards you know and and look at the standards and they tend to think well gosh as a speech language pathologist I'm going to look at the the English language arts standards because that's uh-huh. Okay, well, yeah, that's natural. You can certainly find many, many things that we can target. But I actually have them go into the math standards, into the science standards, because I want them to find the languages everywhere. And, you know, our kids with language impairments don't usually just struggle in English and language arts. They struggle often academically across the board because most of the things they're doing require language, whether it's oral language processing or written language processing. So I think it's, you know, we we try to teach them that, Language is everywhere. And so we can really work across different content areas to help kids be better academically all around. Yes, yes. I remember when I was doing seminars, I was on the road, and I remember this one phrase that a therapist brought up during one of my courses. And she said, language is the method of instruction. And that just encompasses everything. 
And she said that she would, you know, maybe tell a parent during an IEP meeting and the parent is saying, well, why does my kid need this language stuff? You know, he or she or whatever, they can talk. And she would say, but language is the method of instruction. It's everywhere, everywhere. It's so many different manners and, and ways. And we sort of just, ex- I mean, we, again, we expect our kids to to walk into a classroom and understand all the academic words that teachers use and they don't always. Mm-hmm. So, no, you know, there's so, the time. so many ways yeah. we can be helpful and we can do, again, some of that through literacy instruction. Yes. So. Yes. I have down here that you create storybooks. Is that something that you have done or teach people how to do? Not create storybooks so much as maybe modify books that already exist. You know, we've talked a lot about kids that are verbal and responding, but a lot of the kids that we work with are not highly verbal. So we might modify storybooks to make them more accessible for children who have limited verbal abilities. Now, AAC is not my area of expertise, but you know, you can find someone whose who's it is, but you can modify books with picture symbols or choice boards or, you know, I'm pretty low tech, low tech technology, but not, not creating books, but modifying books to make them more accessible. And I know that, that even if we Google how to create a book or even not necessarily Google, but Teachers Pay Teachers of people creating and putting together books. And I've seen books on making books. And that might be kind of fun, you know, for a child. And I have used like word books in my therapy, you know, to kind of have them build their own, put together a book. And then, you know, as you're reading the storybooks, they write their favorite vocabulary words or whatever in there and maybe come up with the synonym and so on. But yeah, so they're making their own book. They're an author. Yeah. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. Yes. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. You know, another thing that I did, and this was back, you know, this is before COVID and so on. And people are like, huh, why would you want to do that? Is that a lot of times I would take a book that the kids really liked and I would make it into a reader's theater script. Oh, nice. And especially one that they were familiar with, not always, but it's so easy to do. And especially one, you know, that has characters in it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the character is going to be an animal, and but that's okay. But then you just have a narrator and you just type it up. And like I did that with the dot. And, you know, it was a hit. The kids loved doing that. And it's very easy to just that would be like something that you do as an add-on or as a, you know, sort of increasing, you know, after all the basics of learning the vocabulary and reading the book and all of that, that might be kind of something fun that they do. And then they go into the kindergarten classes and and do the reader's theater book for them, you know? I love that idea. We would act out the book sometimes. Ah, And and I'm I'm trying to think of the, I can see the entire... Oh, it'll come to me later, probably when I'm about to go to sleep. But there was different books that we would act out, again, kind of as like a culminating part of the unit. And sometimes we would have the kids dress up to be, you know, whatever part of the book they wanted to be. And we would go create different situations, you know, in the hallways or you mm-hmm. know, wherever we could find space. And again, really just, but I like yours, like a more of a, of a performance, but, but yeah. Sure. Just getting them really involved. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. This is from Anna. During Echo Reading, do the students repeat phrases while referencing the words on the page? Yes. Or, 
or, and I, you know, most of the time I did echo reading when I had the PowerPoint up on the screen and I was standing in front of the kids, but you can do it anytime, but you say the words and then they repeat the words and then you just keep going. And it's just, it's one of those things where everybody is participating. And also it helps, and this is kind of good too, it helps to keep their attention because they don't know when I'm going to ask them to participate. And I always had, and I didn't, I don't have it here, but I always had like little reinforcements for them. And, you know, maybe put down a little, oh, I had a little magnet thing and I would put these little spongy things on there and each one had it in, had them in front of them. And every time, you know, they would participate, I would put a little magnet thing on there for them to kind of keep them focused on the story. And so that everybody was alert. And whenever, when I said, okay, everybody help me read the story, then they would all do it. You know, now this is elementary school. And I don't know if I answered your finder yet. The students repeat phrases while referencing the words on the page. Yes, they were referencing the words on the screen. But you could do the same thing on the page as well. The thing is, the nice thing about having the words up on the screen is that everybody's eyes are up. And you can see who's looking at the screen and who's reading the words and who isn't. And when you actually have a book down here, or maybe you made a copy of it, then they're down here and you can't see what they're looking at. Now, maybe, you know, you do it on a, one of the, the book, the big easels, that would work too. But yeah, it would be nice to be able to see the whites of their eyes <laughs> and for them to see you. Also, you know, as you're reading it, you know, throw in a little intonation or a little gesture and have them imitate that. And this is really good, especially for those low affect kids where, you know, you have facial expressions or you do gestures or whatever to kind of get them to be a little more overt, a little expressive. But yeah, you can do all sorts of things with the echo reading. All right. Good, good. Anything else that you had planned on sharing that you didn't get a chance to? No, I think we've covered so many fun things. I, okay. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Okay, good, good, good. Well, then I'm just going to start our exit here. I really want to say thank you, Jackie, for sharing your amazing knowledge and, and how you coupled it with the practicality and your experience and so on. Very helpful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, Thank you for having me. It's been really fun tonight. Good, good. So in closing, I want to thank all of you for being here, for tuning in, and for continuing to get the word out about the SpeechLink podcast. And I really do appreciate your positive, supportive comments and all of your good reviews. Thank you for that. Also, if you are planning ahead for next month, July, I am doing a live hour and a half course, and it's called What Are You Thinking? <laughs> the Application of Seven Essential Speech Therapy Mindsets. And because, you know, we have speech therapy methodology, that's one thing, but kind of what's going on through our mind is another. So I'll be talking about all of that on Thursday, July 28th at noon Eastern Time. Thursday, July 28th at noon Eastern Time. And I do hope that you can attend that. And also, I do hope that you know just how much you are appreciated. And thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids. So see you next time. Bye-bye. 
I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit sharpbochart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.